All right, James chapter 2, verses 14 through 26. What doth it profit, profit, my brethren, though a man say he hath faith and have not works? Can the faith save him? If a brother or sister be naked and destitute of daily food, and one of you say unto them, Depart in peace, be ye warmed and filled, notwithstanding ye give them not those things which are needful to the body, what doth it profit? Even so, the faith, if it hath not works, is dead, being alone. Yea, a man may say, Thou hast faith, and I have works. Show me thy faith without thy works, and I will show thee my faith by my works. Thou believest that there is one God, thou doest well. The devils also believe and tremble. But wilt thou know, O vain man, that faith without works is dead? Was not Abraham our father justified by works when he had offered Isaac his son upon the altar? Seest thou how faith wrought with his works, and by works was faith made perfect? And the scripture was fulfilled, which saith, Abraham believed God, and it was imputed unto him for righteousness, and he was called the friend of God. You see then how that by works a man is justified and not by faith only. Likewise also was not Rahab the harlot justified by works when she had received the messengers and had sent them out another way. For as the body without the spirit is dead, so faith without works is dead also. And all God's children said, Amen. Amen. Our Heavenly Father, we pray thee now that you would open up this portion of Scripture to us, that we would not become entangled by what others tell it what it means, but rather you would open the meaning unto us and tell us what you say it means. In Jesus' name we pray. Amen. Um, Having opened with that prayer, obviously what I'm sharing with you is that there are some verses in here that are difficult to understand. They're difficult to appreciate. In in 2 Peter chapter 3, the Lord tells us that there are some scriptures that are hard to be understood um, and that people will wrestle with them unto their own destruction. In verse 15 and 16 of 2 Peter chapter 3, he says that, um, an account that the long-suffering of our Lord is salvation, and then he goes on, even as our beloved brother Paul also, according to the wisdom given unto him, hath written unto you, as also in all his epistles, speaking in them, of things in which are some things hard to be understood, which they that are unlearned and unstable rest, as they do also the other scriptures, unto their own destruction. So I'm sharing with us here that there, I think there are some um, scriptures in here, some verses in here that people wrestle with unto their own destruction. Um, God has ordained it such that his Bible would be difficult to understand and certainly impossible to understand if you do not have the Holy Ghost. Um, The Lord says that in Luke chapter 10, verse 21. He says, I thank thee, um, God of heaven and earth, that thou hast hid these things from the wise and prudent and yet revealed them unto babes. So it requires the Lord revealing to us the meaning of these scriptures that we might appreciate what things they mean. He has hidden them from other peoples, from the wise and prudent. And we know that 1 Corinthians chapter 2 says very plainly that unless you have the Spirit of God, you cannot understand what things the Lord has um, written in his word. Now, we can simplistically say being wise and um, being, excuse me, being babes, that 
we understand what's in view here in terms of um, justification and, and works is simply that works are a result of what work God has done in us. It's simply the fruit of salvation. And we can simply say that. We can appreciate that. But do we understand it sufficiently enough when somebody shoves these verses in front of us and says, hey, it says here quite plainly that was not Abraham our father justified by works? And then in verse 24, you see then how that by works a man is justified, not by faith only. So there are some verses in here that clearly use that language, that Abraham was justified by works. I've had many a conversation with people about these verses, and the Catholics, if they don't know anything in their Bible, they know this verse. They know these two, two verses, and they run, um, they run to them. Now, just as um, the Lord, through the pen of Paul, has written things that are difficult to understand, so too with respect to what things are written in the book of James here. They are hard to understand, and there are people that have really struggled with what um, is meant by the things that are written um, therein. Um, By way of example, you'll recall in the book of Galatians and also in the book of Acts that they were having an issue about justification, whether or not circumcision was required or whether or not it was necessary for them to follow the law of of Moses. So we find in Galatians chapter 2, verse 4, it speaks about how false brethren, unawares brought in, who came in privily to spy out our liberty, which we have in Christ Jesus, that they might bring us unto bondage. So these people are coming up. They're coming from Jerusalem. They're coming up to Antioch, where the, um, which has now become the center of the church. The gospel is going out from Antioch. And they are coming up there, and as he says here, endeavoring them to bring them back into bondage. Well, bondage to what? Bondage to the law. That is, that justification is somehow related to following the law of Moses. Now, while they condemn a person who's not a Christian, because if they're not a Christian, they're damned anyway, they already abide under the wrath of God, but they can get caught up in this idea that they have to do something to be justified. But even Christians can get caught up in this too and dragged down by it. And we see that in verses 11 through 13 of Galatians chapter 2. It talks about how Peter got caught up with this and Barnabas got caught up in it as well. Now, I can understand why Peter might get caught up in it, because he's down in Jerusalem and he's in the midst of all of this stuff. But Barnabas had already made a lap around the Mediterranean with um, the Apostle Paul in terms of preaching to the Gentiles. And he says in verse 11, But when Peter was come unto Antioch, I withstood him to the face, because he was to be blamed. For before that certain came from James, he did eat with the Gentiles. But when they were come, he withdrew and separated himself, fearing them which were of the circumcision. And the other Jews dissembled likewise with them, insomuch that Barnabas also was carried away with their dissimulation. So we see how this, um, this cancerous way of thinking is creeping into the church, and they are, being, they are starting to separate again the Jews from the Gentiles, and they're really struggling with this issue about whether or not a person needs to be circumcised or to what degree they have to obey the Moses law. I mean, is justification by works? Is it by grace? Is it by a combination of both of those things? The church is struggling with it. So in Acts chapter 15, they come together for a council at Jerusalem. And in verse 1 of Acts 15, it says, Certain men came down from Judea, taught the brethren, and said, This would be the brethren up in Anak, Except ye be circumcised after their manner of Moses, ye cannot be saved. So they're very plainly introducing um, some portion of the law into what would be required uh, that a man would be saved. 
And uh, it turns out there's a bunch of Pharisees down there in Jerusalem, and we know what a Pharisee is. They are a legalist, and Paul says that he was one too. So what they would do is not only do you got to obey the law of Moses, but they would add to it, say they were really a self-righteous group of people. Down in verse 5 here of Acts 15, it says, But there rose up, this is down in Jerusalem now, there rose up certain of the sect of the Pharisees, which believed, saying that it was needful to circumcise them and that to command them to keep the law of Moses. It says they believed. I wonder what they believed. They certainly believed that it was necessary to keep the law of Moses. So be careful about when a person says they have faith. I wonder what they really believe. So um, this issue is a big deal. I wonder what they believe. Do they believe in justification by works through the law, or do they believe in justification by grace, or do they believe in a combination, a little bit of that and a little bit of of grace? Um, In um, Romans chapter 11, verse 6, the Bible tells us very clearly that it's one or the other. If it is grace, then it's no more works. And if it be works, it'd be no more grace. So it's one or the other. So the Bible teaches clearly that it is one or the other. But nevertheless, people still get uh, struggle with this issue, and they believe that it is both. And that's what the Catholics believe. The Roman Catholics believe that it is grace, and they will, they will instead of use works, instead of that word works, they will say grace plus acts of charity. Grace plus acts of charity. Well, acts of charity... Since we don't know how deceitful our heart is, that's really works. That's just another way of saying works. But they're trying to put a love motivation behind it um, to put a smiley face on a, uh, I'll use a biblical term, put a jewel in the snout of a pig, you know. Um, Our works are like filthy rags. So, um, again, their proof text is is James chapter 2, verse 21 and 24, where it says that Abraham was justified by, by works. And so you have to look at the big picture, and you should never get caught or drawn into an argument, and I've been drawn into this many times, and you can get sucked into it very easily where somebody wants to look at one scripture and draw a doctrine from one scripture rather than looking at the big picture, rather than looking at the whole Bible and seeing what it says in other places and how it would shed light on what is in view on that particular scripture. I had a friend that liked to do that in particular with a a verse here or there in the book of Romans. But if you've read the book of Romans a number of times, as I'm sure you have, you know that the um, the Lord builds an argument for several chapters before he makes a statement. So looking at the bigger picture, we all know what it says in Ephesians 2, 8, and 9, that by grace are you saved through faith, and that not of yourselves, it is a gift of God, not of works, lest any man should boast, for we are his workmanship, created in Christ Jesus unto good works, which God hath before ordained that we should walk in them. We are his works, and the works that we do, the good works that we do, God has ordained us to do them. So right from the word go here, I want you to understand that the good works that we do, it's God working in us. It is not our works. In Galatians chapter 2, Verse 16, and I'll read verse 21. Also, very clear language about here. The Lord says, Knowing that a man is not justified by the works of the law, but by the faith of Jesus Christ, even we have believed in Jesus Christ, that we might be justified by the faith of Christ and not the works of the law. It's the second time he said it. For by the works of the law, third time, shall no flesh be justified. Three times in one verse, he makes it crystal clear that you're not justified by works. Down in verse 21, 
I do not frustrate the grace of God, for if righteousness came by the law or by works, then Christ is dead in vain. All right, crystal clear language there. I've read three or four verses already that says that justification is not by works. Now, the idea that it might be by works contradicts the first five chapters of the book of Romans. All the way from Romans chapter 1 through chapter 3 and verse 28 of Romans, the Lord summarizes this very nicely here in verse 28. He says, Therefore, because of everything that's said before this, this is Romans chapter 3 verse 28, Therefore, we conclude that a man is justified by faith without the deeds of the law. A man is justified by faith without, you're outside separate from the law, um, you're justified by faith only. In verse chapter 5, verse 1, chapter 5, verse 1, he says, Therefore, again, because of all these things we've said before, being justified by faith, we have peace with God through our Lord Jesus Christ. So he summarizes it again. We are justified by faith. Now, we're going to look at some other verses as we come down here. So clearly, um, it's not both. It's one or the other, and it's, it's grace and everything that they said here. We are justified by grace, and grace alone through faith. So it is not acts of charity and love. They don't contribute to it all. Those are just another way to say um, that you're justified by works, which the Bible clearly makes it um, evident to us that we are justified by Christ alone, by God. Again, the Lord in Isaiah 64, 6 says that uh, all our righteousnesses are as filthy rags, and we like a leaf do fade away. Our iniquities, have, like the wind, with the wind, have taken us away. Uh, Romans 3, 23, we all have sinned and come short of the glory of God. That would include all of the works that you do. And, uh, and uh, Romans 6, 23, the wages of sin is death, but the gift of God is eternal life through Jesus Christ our Lord. So... Eternal life is a gift from God. We are sinners. So clearly, we cannot justify ourselves in any degree, not wholly or not partially. There's no, nothing we can add to uh, the work that God has done to make us just a little bit better or just a little bit more meritorious or just a little bit more appealing to God. We can't do anything about that. So respecting justification, there are four ways... Um, that we can consider it are four words that, that can be used. We are justified judiciously by God. We are justified judiciously by God, and that comes from Romans chapter 8, verse 33. Romans 8, 33. We are justified judicially by God. So in Romans 8, 33, he says, Who shall lay anything to the charge of God's elect? It is God that justifieth. Could there be a clearer verse in the Bible? It is God that justifieth. He doesn't need our help. Who is he that condemneth? It is Christ that died. Okay, so it is God that justifies us judiciously. Recall in 2 Corinthians 5.21, it says, For God hath made him sin, speaking of Christ, who knew no sin, that we might be made the righteousness of God in him. It was all a work of God. He has made us righteous by virtue of what Christ has done. So judiciously, you are justified by God. Meritoriously, you are justified by Christ. And the Lord says that in Isaiah 53, verse 11, that we are meritoriously justified by Christ. 
Isaiah 53, 11, he says, He shall see the trail. God shall see the travail of his soul, Christ's soul, and shall be satisfied by his knowledge, by Christ's knowledge, shall my righteous servant justify many, for he shall bear their iniquities. Christ here, by virtue of his work on the cross, by virtue of the imputation of our sin to him, justified many. He wasn't up there on the cross, you know, with me, with him. You know, he was there by himself. He justified many. Romans 5.19, again, would, would affirm this in Romans 5.19. It says, for by one man's disobedience, it would be Adam's, many were made sinners. And so by the obedience of one shall many be made righteous. By the obedience of Christ, many were made righteous. So, again, we are justified meritoriously by the work that Christ has done. And the media, we are justified in a mediative way by faith. Faith is the agency by which um, the righteousness of God is imputed to us and our sins to him. Romans 5.1, Therefore, being justified by faith, we have peace with God through our Lord Jesus Christ. So justified judicially by God, meritoriously by the work of Christ. Faith is the mediator that works between us and evidentially by our works. Evidentially by our works. And that is what is meant by James um, chapter 2, verse 21. Was not Abraham our father evidentially justified by works? And then down in verse 24, you see then how that by works a man is evidentially Justified, And I'm going to build on that in a minute. So now let's go, and we're going to go verse by verse through James chapter 2, picking it up in verse 14. So it starts with a hypothetical. What doth it profit, my brethren, though a man say he hath faith and have not works? Can the faith save him? Now I'm adding the article the in there because it's actually in the Greek. So that's how the Lord has said it. Can the faith save this particular individual. Now, recall back in Acts chapter 15, I talked to you about how these Pharisees said if they believed. Well, I wonder what they believed. Did they believe exclusively on the Lord Jesus Christ? I would say no, they did not. They believed in themselves as well. They believed in their own self-righteousness. Now, recall in Acts chapter 8, there's an individual who's called Simon the Sorcerer. Uh, Philip had gone down to uh, preach to the people in uh, Samaria, and uh, when he was there, there was a certain man named Simon, and he had bewitched the people with his sorceries. He was engaged in activities, and really what he was doing, he was building himself up and preaching himself. So Philip preaches, and it says that many of the people believed, and uh, this fellow believed as well. And it says here in verse 12, but when they believed Philip preaching the things concerning the kingdom of God and the name of Jesus Christ, they were baptized, both men and women. Then Simon himself believed also, and when he was baptized, he continued with Philip and wondered, beholding the miracles and signs which were, and signs which were done. So here you got a whole bunch of people, quote, believing, and it says they were baptized, and so we kind of wonder what that means, because it's not till you get to verse 16 where it says they were, it tells us that they were baptized in the name of the Holy Ghost, excuse me, they were baptized in the name of the Lord Jesus, meaning they were taught those things, so they believed what things they were taught. But up in verse 14 is when they actually received the um, Holy Ghost. Word. And then, oh, verse 17, I'm sorry. Then laid their hands on them. Peter has come up and they um, received the Holy Ghost. So 
They're believing something, but they haven't received the Holy Ghost. And what does the Lord teach us in John chapter 3? Unless a man be born again, he cannot see the kingdom of heaven, he cannot enter into the kingdom of heaven. So they believed something, but it was not a belief unto conversion. Now, Simon here was baptized. I'll put that in quotes the same way everybody else was, but he did not receive the Holy Ghost. When you get over to um, verse, let's see here, verse 23, um, we realize that Simon here is in the gall of bitterness and in the bond of iniquity. Peter tells him that his heart is not right with the Lord. So even though he's said to be a believer and said to be baptized, he's not believing in salvation by grace alone, through faith alone, in Christ alone. He's believing something entirely different. So I'm sharing these verses with us, so we will appreciate that when in verse 14 here of James chapter 2, it says, when a man says he has faith. Well, what kind of faith does he have, and what does he actually uh, believe in. With respect to the apostles, you'll recall from the Gospels that Jesus will do something and it says they believed. Again, what did they believe? I don't know. They didn't bear any fruit until after they received the Holy Ghost, which they don't receive the first dose until John chapter 20, verse 22, where the Lord breathes on them after his resurrection says, receive ye the Holy Ghost. They get the second dose of the Holy Ghost in Acts chapter 2 when uh, the Holy Spirit comes down from above and is on their heads like um, tongues of flames, and they hear a great wind. From that point moving forward, Peter bears fruit. When Christ is at the cross and they're arresting him, all the disciples flee. They all go. Nobody really believes in him. If they did believe in him, they would have, they would have stayed with him. So clearly they believe something, but they didn't believe unto salvation. After they received the Holy Ghost... Now they believe, now they bear fruit. Peter goes and he heals people and he does the greatest um, good work, which is to preach the gospel. And that's what he does. He starts to preach the gospel of everybody in spite of all of the opposition, in spite of being cast into prison, he continues to go forth and to preach the gospel. So that's the good fruit that we're looking for. Um, in, um, as we move on here, James chapter 2, verse 15 and 16, I want you to consider what's really in view here. It's really about preaching the gospel. That is the greatest work that a person could do. So this fellow says he has faith in verse 14. It's a hypothetical, but we're asking ourselves, what does he really have faith in? What does he really believe? Um, I don't really know. But the idea that a person would bear fruit is not a new concept. It appears right in the beginning of the gospels from John the Baptist when the Pharisees and the um, the priests, they come out to visit with them, and he asks them uh, to show them fruits meet for repentance, meaning show me some fruit here that would indicate that you are actually repenting in your heart. And then he talks about how if tree bears no fruit, the axe would be laid to the root and the tree would be cut down. Um, Jesus does the same thing, and I'm going to actually read a portion of Matthew chapter 7 because he says it very clearly in Matthew chapter 7. He's talking about people. There's not a hypothetical here. In Matthew chapter 7, the Lord is speaking, and he says, Beware of false prophets, which come into you in sheep's clothing. That's no different than what came up to Antioch from Jerusalem. These guys, they looked like Christians. They said they believed. They were speaking like Christians, but they were wolves in sheep's clothing because they were advocating adherence to the law, endeavoring to bring people back into bondage. They're false prophets. Verse 15 of Matthew chapter 7. Beware of false prophets, which come into you in sheep's clothing, but inwardly they are ravening wolves. You shall know them by their fruits. 
Do men gather grapes of thorns or figs, figs from thistles? Obviously, no. You gather figs from a fig tree and you gather, gather grapes from a grapevine. Even so, every good tree bringeth forth good fruit, but a corrupt tree bringeth forth evil fruit. A good tree cannot bring forth evil fruit, neither can a corrupt tree bring forth good fruit. Every tree that bringeth not forth good fruit is hewn down and cast into the fire. Verse 20. Wherefore, by their fruit shall ye know them. Know the people. So there's an expectation that certain people produce certain fruits. And you can connect the dots between the fruit and the person. And that's what is set before us here in James chapter 2, all right? We're going to talk about fruit now, and we're going to see if there's a relationship between the fruit and the faith. So, the question is asked, can the faith of this man save him? He has no works. Can the faith of him save him? He has no works. Verse 19, jump down to there, it says, Thou believest that there is one God, or God is one, Thou doest well. The devils also believe and tremble. Will the faith of those devils save them? Well, I don't think so. In Matthew chapter 8, verse 28 and 29 is the occasion when the Lord comes to the country of the Gergesenes, and he's met there with two possessed by devils. That's Matthew chapter 8, verse 28. And he, there comes out to meet him two possessed with devils coming out of the tombs, exceeding fierce, so that no man might pass by that way. Verse 29, And behold, they cried out, that would be the devils, they cried out, saying, What have we to do with thee, Jesus, the Son of God? Remember, the devils believe that there is one God in tremble. They're calling Jesus the Son of God. They're saying that he is God. Scripture makes that clear, that in him dwelt all the fullness of the Godhead bodily, and he is the Almighty. So they know that Jesus is God. Thou art come hither to torment us before the time. That's a question. They know where they're going. They know who he is, and they know what power he has. Their faith will not save them from destruction. And we see that act, acted out here because the devils are cast into the swine, which are an unclean animal, which then uh, trample down the hill. They charge down the hill, and they go into the lake, and they are all drowned, indicative of what shall happen to the angels. In Jude 1.6, it talks about the angels reserved in everlasting chains under darkness until the judgment of the great day. They're going to be cast into the lake of fire, even though they believe that Jesus is the Son of God. So the question is, will the devil's faith save them? No. Will this man's faith save him? Not if they're, it's not accompanied by works. Verse 25, I want to ask the question about, it says, Likewise, also was Rahab the harlot justified by works. And I, I'm going to talk about this later, but I want you to keep in mind the word likewise. We have Abraham, whom is set up as the icon of faith in the Old Testament. Christians all looked up to him. The Jews looked up to him as the great icon of faith. And we've been going through his life in detail and seeing that it's been a stumbling walk, just like every other Christian's. But nevertheless, he's set up as an icon of faith. Same thing that is true of Abraham is true of Rahab. You're going to be hard-pressed to make a case for Rahab that she was faithful. Hard-pressed. God said she was, but you're going to be hard-pressed when looking at her life. Your and my life is the same. Likewise Abraham, likewise Rahab, likewise um, you know, 
Every one of us in this church, everyone that's a Christian, likewise, the same thing. So what about the faith of the people in Jericho? When I read from um, Joshua chapter 2, we appreciated that all of the people there in that city believed something about the God of the Israelites. They feared the Israelites, but they believed something about the God of Israel. In verses 9 and 10 of Joshua chapter 2, Rahab is speaking to the spies, and she said unto the men, I know that the Lord hath given you the land, and that your terror is fallen upon us. Everyone in the city, the terror is fallen upon them, and that all the inhabitants of the land faint because of you. For we, plural, all have heard how the Lord dried up the water of the Red Sea for you when you came up out of when you came out of Egypt, and what you did unto the two kings of the Amorites that were on the other side of Jordan, Sihon and Og, whom ye utterly destroyed. Everybody in the city knows what the Israelites have done. They know that the Lord is with them. They know what things the Lord has accomplished uh, on their behalf. You can bet they heard about what we refer to as the ten plagues, um, or actually ten wonders. You can bet they understood what the Lord had done there. Um, When Pharaoh's army was chasing the Israelites across the floor of the Red Sea, They looked up and they could see that the Lord was fighting on their behalf, on the behalf of the Israelites. So they believed something about that relationship there, and yet it didn't save any one of them. They say, let us flee from the face of Israel, for the Lord fighteth for them, um, fighteth for for, for Israel. So they believed something. So they had some level of faith. They had some understanding about who God was. And the Israelites in particular had gone through these 10 wonders where ended up with the firstborn of every person being saved. And they'd seen the blood on the doorpost. I mean, they had witnessed that and seen that relationship. They surely believed something, and yet it did not profit them. They, uh, it was not a saving faith. So verse 14, so a man say he have faith and hath not works. Can the faith of that man save him? The answer is obviously no. It doesn't save the devils, and it did not save the inhabitants of Jericho. Verse 15 and 16, again, it sets forth this hypothetical about um, whether or not, you know, he sees a brother or sister naked and destitute of daily food, and one of you say unto them, Depart in peace, be warmed and filled, notwithstanding you give them not those things which are needful to the body, what doth it profit them? Now, the Lord gives us an exhortation about what things we should do, and we shouldn't um, have a need to look at it, but he says in the book of Galatians that that we should uh, not be weary in well-doing. Let us not be weary in well-doing, for in due season we shall reap if we faint not. As we have therefore opportunity, let us do good unto all men, especially unto them who are the household of faith. So there's an exhortation here to do good unto all people, but especially your brothers and sisters in Christ. That's the example he's setting forth here is a brother or sister. Be naked and, daily, and destitute of daily food. And so this person does nothing but says, All right, be ye warmed and depart in peace. He's done nothing for that particular individual. Nobody has profited from it. The person who is in need has not profited from it. And the Lord says it is better to give than receive. The person who's expressing sympathy is not profiting from it either. The Lord speaks about that in the context of worshiping him when he talks about how people might honor them um, with their mouth and draw nigh with them 
with their lips, though their hearts be far from him. So in that context, God is receiving the worship from an individual, but it's vain. It's empty. It's meaningless. It's not coming from their heart. So the object doesn't profit, and most certainly does the uh, person engaged in the vain worship is not profiting either. Nobody is profiting from the exchange. In like manner here in verse 15 and 16, nobody is, a, is profiting from that vain or empty expression of sympathy. <laughs> the person's still hungry, and they're still unclothed. Now, when you get to Matthew chapter 25, you're all familiar with that's when the Lord sets before us the great day of judgment. And it talks about a king, and he's got a sheep on the right hand and the goats on the left hand. And there's this conversation about whether or not anybody did any good to him. You know, and he says, well, when you did it to the least of these, my brethren, you have done it unto me. When you clothed them, which is in here, you know, when you fed them, you've done it unto me. And he also talks about visiting them in prison. He's speaking about sharing the gospel, which is also in view here. You visit somebody in prison when you go preach the gospel to them, and that's when you free them from prison, prison when they hear the gospel and the Lord places it on their hearts. When you give them food, you give them heavenly manna. You feed them Christ, and you clothe them when you put on them the garments of righteousness and the, uh, the robe of righteousness and the garments of salvation, as it speaks about in um, Isaiah chapter um, 61, verse 10. So, Nothing, there's been no meaningful exchange here. Nobody has profited by virtue of what has taken place here. So he takes from that, and he says in verse 17, Even so, the faith of it hath not, if it hath not works, is dead, being alone. Nothing has taken place here. If the works don't exist, if the works don't exist, nothing meaningful was proffered to the saint up in verse 15. The faith doesn't exist. No works, no faith. Faith is said to be dead. Verse 18, again, we're going to have this hypothetical conversation in verse 18. He says, yea, a man, this would be a different man than the vain man in verse 14. Yea, a man say, quote, thou hast faith and I have works. Okay? You have faith and I have works. And the answer to that would be, well, show me your faith without your works. It cannot be done. You cannot show faith without works. There can't be saving faith without some manifestation of it. In 2 Corinthians 5.17, the Lord says that if any man be in Christ, he is a new creature. Old things have passed away. Behold, all things have become new. If you are a new creature in Christ, if you are a partaker of the divine nature, if you are being conformed to the image of Christ, some of that should be manifest in the things that you're doing. You ought to live a different life. You ought not to do the things that you used to do, hang out with the people you used to hang out with, but you're going to want to hang out with Christians. There's going to be a, a manifest and visible change in your life. So he says, continues here, and I will show thee my faith by my works. And so the author here, which is the Lord, through the pen of James, is going to continue, and he's going to show us Abraham's faith by his work of offering up Isaac, and he's going to show us Rahab's faith by what work she did in hiding the spies that came out from Israel. In Hebrews chapter 11, verses 17 through 19, Hebrews chapter 11, verse 17 through 19, he says, By faith, by faith, 
when he was tried. By faith, Abraham, when he was tried, offered up Isaac, and he that had received the promises offered up his only begotten son, of whom it was said that in Isaac shall thy seed be called, accounting that God was able to raise him up, even from the dead, from whence also he received him by a figure. The key here is verse 17. Abraham made that offering by faith. He wasn't just engaged in a work. He did it by faith. Look over at verse 31 of Hebrews 11. By faith, the harlot Rahab perished not with them that believed not when she had received the spies with peace. Obviously, they believed something different than what she believed. What she had done, she did so by faith. And it was a manifestation, that work or that uh, what they had done was a, was a manifestation of the saving faith that they had. And so uh, verse 18, back in James, it says, their, well, let's appreciate that their faith was shown by their works. Their faith was shown by their works. Now, we already covered, covered verse 19 about the devils believe and yet they do tremble. Um, Obviously, devils do not have a saving faith. It is not accompanied by any good works. It's only accompanied by evil fruit, by bad fruit, corrupt fruit. Same thing with the inhabitants of Jericho. It was not a saving faith. Hebrews eleven thirty one just told us there that they didn't have a um, that they didn't believe, um, and as a result of that, it was not accompanied by good works from God's perspective. And so, what does He do with a tree that does not produce good works? He lays the axe to the roots and cuts it down. And that's exactly what he did to the city of Jericho. He laid it level with the ground. The walls came down as though an axe was taken to bring them down. So, verse 20, he states very plainly to the man up in verse 14. He calls him, O vain man. But wilt thou know, O vain man, that faith without works is dead? He's saying it about as clear as it can be said. If you don't have any works, then you don't have any faith. Your faith um, is dead. Because you cannot show me your faith without your works. It cannot be done. So verse 21, we're going to understand this to be, or we should understand this to believe, that Abraham is evidently justified by what he did. Was not Abraham our father justified by works when he had offered Isaac, his son, upon the altar. Hebrews chapter 11, verse 4. This is in the same context of what Abraham did. Hebrews 11, verse 4. By faith, Abel offered unto God. We just read that by faith, Abraham offered up Isaac. By faith, Abel offered unto God a more excellent sacrifice than Cain, by which he obtained witness or evidence, evidentiary righteous, evidentiary justification, by which he obtained witness that he was, past tense, righteous. God testifying of his gifts, and by it he being dead yet speaketh. This still bears witness unto his righteousness with respect to what what he had done by virtue of his offering. Same thing is true with Abraham in terms of uh, it bearing witness that he was righteous by the virtue of him offering up his son, um, Isaac. So um, again, Hebrews eleven seventeen says that by faith he offered up Isaac. That would be faith he had 
before he offered up Isaac. And it was the faith that was given to him back in Genesis 15, 6, when God made a promise to him and he said he believed God and it was imputed to him for righteousness. So Abraham was righteous back in Genesis chapter 15 and he was judicially justified by God by virtue of imputation by the meritorious works of Christ back in Genesis chapter 15. So again, he's justified by God and uh, meritoriously by the works that Christ had done, imputed to him by faith. Now, all of, the, all of what took place is evident by the faith in which he offered up his son Isaac. So verse 23 then says, And the scripture was fulfilled, which saith, it was fulfilled, meaning um, the promise was back in Genesis 15, and the scripture was fulfilled, which saith, Abraham believed God, and it was imputed unto him for righteousness. And he was called the friend of God. Called the friend of God after the righteousness was imputed. So there's no question here that he's talking about um, Genesis 15.6 because that's exactly what took place in Genesis 15.6. So, um, and we see that the fruit is born when he finally offers up Isaac. That's when we see the fruit of what took place in Genesis 15.6. In verse 22, the Lord wants us to appreciate how these things work together, how faith and works are wrought with each other. They work together with each other, not for your justification, uh, judicial justification, not for your meritorious justification, but for perfecting your God-given faith. The trial that Abraham suffered was to perfect his faith that God gave him. It was to increase it. It was to strengthen it. And that is why God tested Abraham. It wasn't for God's benefit, but it was for our benefit so that we would appreciate the trials that we have, which God gives us intending to draw us closer to him and to strengthen our faith. God is omniscient. He is the potter. We are the clay. What things he does is always for our benefit, no matter how difficult and trying on our heart it is. It's to build and strengthen our faith. So verse 24 we have, so we see then how that by works a man is justified, not by faith only, meaning a man is evidentiary justified. As we just read in Hebrews 11:4, it bears witness that we are, he are righteous, that he was judicially justified. Now verse 25, and the next time a Catholic has a conversation with you, I want you to go down to verse 25 and hang on the word likewise, likewise Rahab just like Abraham, likewise. She was a a woman, she was a Gentile, and she was a harlot. A woman, she was a Gentile, and a harlot. Now, I want you to imagine yourself living in the city of Jericho, and you happen to be the king of Jericho. You have the responsibility for the security of that city. We know that all principalities and powers are ordained by God, and this guy is ruling because God has placed him on the throne. He's looking three miles to the east across the Jordan River, and he sees a 600,000-man army. That's the number of the Israelites that are over the age of 20. He's looking at a 600,000-man army, and he knows that spies have come in, and they've gone to um, Rahab's house. What is he going to do? Where are these guys? I want to talk to them. Um, He's got to figure out what to do, and he's got to figure out how to defend his city, and he's got two spies that are in there. So what does... Uh, Rahab do? 
Well, she gives aid to the spies that are going to utterly destroy the city. That's why I went over and had us look at Joshua chapter 6. They killed everybody. Everybody that she ever knew growing up her whole life, with the exception of what relatives she gathered in place into her house, they killed every one of them. They killed men that were husbands, and they were sons, they were grandfathers, they were children. They killed women that were wives, that were daughters. Um, they killed uh, babies, children. They killed everybody. They put the sword to everybody. So the entire city is burnt to the ground. They slay even the ox and the sheep. Can anybody make a case that Rahab, the harlot and traitor to her people, was judicially justified by what she did by receiving the messengers and sending them out another way? Was she judicially justified in what she did? I would say, you know, you ask the question, does the good outweigh the bad? Because people like to do that. Well, you know, I've done some, I've done a few, some good things, and that's going to outweigh the bad things. Can you make that argument in Rahab's case? I can't make that case. What she did, her works of receiving the messengers and sending them out on another way, revealed that she had a saving faith in God. She knew that this place had been given to God. She knew that, of course, by revelation from God um, herself. And Hebrews 11.31 says that she did it by faith. That would obviously be a saving faith, a faith and an appreciation and understanding about what God's objective for the Israelites were, what God's objectives were for the land that they were going to uh, come into. So by that work, it was uh, evidentiarily justification that she believed on the Lord Jesus Christ. Um, those works that she did bore witness that she was judicially justified by faith. She certainly wasn't justified by being a harlot and lying to her king uh, with respect to what happened to the um, spies. She aided them. She sent them another way. She gave them a plan for how to escape those that would pursue them. So likewise, Rahab the harlot was justified, evidentially justified by her works. Now, verse 26 um, is very simple. For as the body without the spirit is dead, so faith without works is dead also. If a person falls over dead on the ground, or you think they're dead on the ground, you know, you feel for a pulse and it might be so weak you can't perceive it. So you might take a mirror and hold it in front of their mouth. The word spirit here is also the same word that's translated as breath. If the body is not breathing, you'll see some condensation on the mirror. If there's no breath, body's dead. It's that simple. No, um, no works, faith is dead. No, no faith. So he sums it up very clearly for us, helping us to appreciate and illustrate that the justification that we have by virtue of what God has done for us, what Christ has done for us, what faith has imputed to us, will manifest itself in works. And so what we're looking at here in terms of that language is evidentiary justification, the witness. So take them to Hebrews chapter 11, verse 4, so that they would appreciate that the things, the offering that he made, the works that we do, bear witness that we are righteous. And so as I go back up to verse 15 and 16, I want us to appreciate that really what's in view there is um, preaching the gospel. That is the best work that a, a saint can, um, can perform. And the Lord says it will be rewarded for it. And those that don't do that work are cast out. Those that don't visit you know, people in prison, that don't um, 
clothe them or don't give them food. Those people are cast into outer darkness because they did not do it for the least of his, my brethren, and therefore they did not do it unto that particular king, which is a representative of Christ. So I'm not telling you to go out there and get shovels and start getting busy doing works. You know, we're looking, talking about good works, and those are the works that are wrought in Christ um, by virtue of his grace and his mercy working in your life. So let's say amen. Amen. amen.